Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your host again, Jay Hersko. Joining me once again, I have my fellow partners in crime, Mr. Jonathan Schneider. Yo, yo. And Mr. Joel Zinstone. Hello, hello. Uh, We are recording again. This week's episode is another episode in the Metaphors Matter series. So for those of you who may not have caught previous episodes, we talked about the importance of using metaphors and how we work uh, in our transformation worlds and our agile worlds, working in complex adaptive systems. And the primary metaphor that we are launching off of, which this episode again will be part of in discussion, the idea of organic and biology, biological-based metaphors, as opposed to the mechanistic mechanical engineering metaphor. And the topic of tonight's discussion specifically is around the idea of adaptability versus survivability. Uh, Is there a difference which one is more beneficial? Which one should we use? Can you do both? Um, John, why don't you kick us off? So the, the genesis of this conversation, I believe this is one of your, you and, you and Joel's discord rants, right? Where you started going back and forth asking, is there a, was it, is there a difference or which one is more important? I don't remember where the, the, the genesis of this was. Oh man. And Joel, please step in on here. But I think a lot of it came from when we were talking about companies and how we were always talking about like the need to change, uh, the pressures to change, the markets were always asking people to adapt and change. And sometimes we we view it as always a positive thing that you're like, oh, let's adapt, let's keep changing. And really there's an interesting conversation of, well, are we adapting because we want to or because we need to? And then the survivability conversation came in where, you know, oh yeah, we need to adapt. That's great. And everyone's <clears throat> like, yeah, but if it's not that, you know, we should to thrive, we should because we'll be like still relevant to it if we do. And that's where the whole survivability piece started to come in because survivability can be simply just because of healthy competition, or it could be because, you know, something's worse. Um, but yeah, Joel, your thoughts, did I miss anything? Yeah. So, so the, Digging a little bit further back in that conversation, the the conversation started around the idea that if we think about companies as organisms, one of the impacts of that is uh, that that they would have evolved different traits to try and survive, right? Um, And and that there were a number of different survival strategies that uh, that they might employ and that uh, that might... uh, that might influence their ability to survive as the ecosystem around them changes, right? Um, so, so we talked about how software companies in the in the mid '90s. Um, one of the things that became abundantly clear in that ecosystem was that uh, adaptability and the ability to uh, to change fast enough to meet their customers' needs was a key survival strategy that they absolutely had to have, right? And we talked about how we, we've seen the same trend happen in a lot of different ecosystems and, and industries uh, that, that spun out of that. We're seeing that spread to, we've certainly have seen that spread to a lot of electronics industries, a lot of manufacturing industries. Uh, and society has has continued, and the, the needs of customers to are, are changing at a at a fast enough pace where, uh, at least for the last 20, 30 years, uh, adaptability has been one of the biggest go to uh, survival strategies. Right. So we started talking about uh, 
whether or not that was always the case, what are some of those outliers? Um, for instance, we, we talked about, I, I remember us bringing up uh, IBM as an example of, uh, we, we talk about IBM in Agile circles a lot as this company that, that failed and not, not failed as in like they're no longer in existence, but as this behemoth that is uh, still big, but no longer on the cutting edge of things. And by the way, if anybody from IBM is, is listening, I, I'm so sorry, <laughs> but, um, but, but we, we, in the agile world, we talk about, about IBM and, and, and some of the other behemoths as being supplanted by the, the Googles, the Apples, the, uh, the Microsofts, et cetera. Um, and, and I, I think where we, where we kind of left it was maybe IBM's survival strategy wasn't to, uh, to be adaptable and, and maybe technically it worked, right? Because they are still around. They are one of the biggest patent houses in the world, right? And, uh, and yeah, consumers don't know IBM's name nearly as much as they do the Googles or the Microsofts, but their survival strategy shifted and changed. Um, and so, so yeah, you're, you're spot on in that we, we did talk about the, the trade-offs there between adaptability and, and survivability and whether adaptability was, was always um, the right survival mechanism. Uh, and if sometimes it might hurt survivability. I mean, we, we hear, and when you look into like product design uh, materials, they talk about how products who, don't, who lack focus tend to do poorly, right? <laughs> and, and products that don't stay true to their vision. Well, staying true to their vision is not being very adaptable, <laughs> right? Right, right. So one of the things you just said, Joel, made me think, right? The idea of the idea of survivability as a corporate, you know, a corporate mechanism to, to guarantee future, you guarantee longevity, right? And a lot, almost like how things happen in nature, I, I think that sometimes companies see a different organization, a different enterprise, not necessarily in their industry, and they see what they do and how successful they are, and they want to copy it. Because they think, oh, well, if John did that and John ended up at X and I want to end up at X, I should do what John did. And it's kind of like this weird sort of mimicry. It's not biomimicry, but it's weird sort of, sort of like quasi survival mechanism where, oh, maybe we should do that because it worked for them. And, you know, before we started recording, we started talking about a company like GE, which their bread and butter was power and industrial design and industrial manufacturing, jet engines, the whole nine. And then they expanded and they went into all these different products. And now it's going the other way. And maybe it trying to, maybe were they trying to be so adaptive, adaptable that they ruined, they actually denigrated their chances for survivability because they became too broad? Maybe, but before we go there, just so you know, uh, I believe, and I, I think the data would probably back me up on this, that one of the reasons Agile became so popular over the last decade is because of that mimicry, because it spread beyond software. Yes. Right. They said, companies said, oh, well, that's working really well for technology companies. So why don't we try that in making houses or, or whatever, right? <laughs> right, right. Right. Agile in finance, agile in HR, agile in here, agile, and to quote Mike Cannell, yeah. agile, 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 agile. <laughs> and, but we never stop and go, 
is it, is it the right is it the right fit? So, John, let me ask you: Is there a trade-off between adaptability and survivability? Are you sacrificing one for the other, or vice versa? So we kind of already alluded to it. In a way, yes, because it depends on the company vision and what people are getting trying to achieve. So we we already talked about how part of being having the survivability is the ability to adapt. So in a way, it's there. But we also just talked about how just because you need to adapt to survive doesn't mean you want to. And that's where more behavioral and psychology things comes into play. Um, even in nature, right? Some things are just very stubborn and they're like, well, I'll, I'll, I'll survive. I'll be fine. And once again, they get extinct. That's why we have things that actually go extinct. Um, so when there's a trade-off, I mean, what's the expectations of what we're trying to do here? Yeah, if we just want to survive and coast and just be good at where we are, there are companies out there just like that, right? There are people that start their own business, make $10 million, and they're like, I'm awesome. Like, I'm good. So now I'm just going to continue to adapt to sustain what I've built because I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. Once again, in nature, this happens. I would say the trade-offs get really interesting when adaptability goes beyond just being able to survive. And adaptability is more around growth and continuing to adapt and adapting to be better. Um, I think this is where the evolution inside of the human side, if you actually look at how we've adapted throughout, look at how humans adapted compared to the rest of nature. It's insane yes. how, how much further we have gone because we didn't just survive. We are thriving than any other living organism, and it's not even close. And, and but so maybe so now that you've said humans, right? You've introduced the human the bio, biology piece. Here we go. We're talking about adaptability and survivability. Is there a third side to this trial that we're not talking about? And it's the side of evolution, right? So you think about yeah. it. The only reason we, as a species, Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens, for Craig Larmanites, um, the only reason why we have actually thrived is because we have consistently evolved to a place where we landed where we are, and. In evolution, you know, there, there are multiple steps that are taken. Some work, some don't. Some are aberrations, which barely make it out of the womb. And some evolutionary attempts, they're just evolutionary dead ends. And, and the, the book I'm reading is dealing a lot with evolutions and, and gene theory and all that sort of stuff, how our genes drive us. And there are multiple dead branches in the Homo sapien tree. There were multiple, you know, uh, Neanderthals and, and Homo erectus and there are multiple branches that they kind of evolved with us, but for whatever reason, our language is the, is the, is the primary mode is the yeah. primary argument, right? We have subsumed them. So maybe, they, maybe companies, I mean, not to, not to be glib or, or pessimistic, but maybe they should look at themselves like an, like an organic entity that, you know, maybe we've evolved to a point GE evolved to the point where they evolved and they were no longer fit for purpose. Right? Yeah, so keep in, keep in mind real quick, uh, based off the human comment you made too, and I will not pronounce these evolution stages because they're very complicated, but there was like five or seven stages, right? And of those five or seven of that came out that were human-like, because early in the state, there wasn't just, oh, homo sapiens, that was the last one. There were five or seven, and all of those other ones died off because they didn't survive. And you're right. I think it wasn't just because people adapted. They also got lucky and evolved based off where they went. So that's part of nature and business as well. Mm -hmm. So so I'm wondering um, when when we look at if we look at evolution as kind of a, a third factor here, 
the the evolutionary mechanism isn't individual organisms ability to adapt or survive right it's these the statistical probability of of the total organisms in the in the gene pool of that that organism that, that have the chance to survive and um, more importantly the the uh, mutation of genes that and again I'm, I'm doing the same thing john i'm butchering all of the the scientific terms here but um the mutation of genes that uh that develop new capabilities to adapt and survive are all done between generations not not inside of a generation i don't magically sprout a new appendage or <laughs> in uh, off of my my body right no. um i have children who have a new appendage on their body and that's a dramatic oversimplification right but it actually the, the mechanism to adapt and and change as a species and have a better chance of survival comes through reproduction not through through staying alive forever right 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 <laughs> Right. Although any scientists listening would point out that there are um, there are organic beings like that uh, forest in Utah that are thousands and thousands and thousands of years old, but <laughs> that's well. Let's the point. let's and let's put it in perspective too to the like uh, in the business world and things that are happening in organizations. What is a critical thing that was not common, uh, as recent as maybe even thirty or forty year ago, years ago in most companies? You didn't really need IT that much back then it was just you know email didn't even exist right you did all these things you just pick up a phone maybe some light it stuff so i would argue that like yeah we had to heavily adapt every five years ten years to what was happening but the evolution now of you're a company and you don't have a rock solid awesome technology in it like that evolved heavily yeah yeah you could end up being that evolutionary dead end where yes. you've evolved yourself into it it's it's like when we talk about um flow distribution and now if you only work on new features you're going to tech debt yourself right into a corner right there are companies that evolve themselves into a corner and don't know how to get out of it and and joel made a great analogy i think it was the last episode where he talks about part of the problem with looking at things as a, in a mechanistic lens is you think things are like components they can just be hot swapped and replaced and oh it'll the engine will run forever if we just keep you know swapping out the pieces that break whereas an organization based on an organism, the biology piece, nothing is, will run forever, right? There, there are pieces that are inevitably going to slow down and or fail. And maybe, you know, back to the GE example, we got to find something with GE to get on the show and talk, talk to us about this. Um, it's, it's almost like that, that, okay, well, maybe we, you know, not we had to burn the village to save it, but by sacrificing this piece, you, you increase your survivability and you introduce a level of adaptability by, by uh, I hate to say dead weight or cutting off, like, you know, leave, leaving the, 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 the lame and disfigured behind and can't keep up with the herd. But there might be something there, like the idea of the idea of cellular apoptosis, right? The voluntary cell death, which is where parts of our cells will voluntarily kill themselves off in the great, for the greater good of survival of the host. And the examples where this doesn't, this doesn't work is, too much cellular apoptosis uncontrolled is what causes Alzheimer's. The brain cells start to break down when they're not supposed to. Conversely, unchecked cellular growth is cancer. That's, that's where the apoptosis trigger is not triggered. 
and it just keeps growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. So maybe there's something to be said when we look at, if we were to look at our companies like a living organism, are there product lines or are there parts that we should maybe sell them off, cleave them and, and, and sell them off and, uh, to prevent to prevent maybe them, them becoming gangrenous? So, so I think the answer is uh, we, we've seen that play out over the last few generations of, of companies, right? And, and the answer is sometimes, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, right? I mean, there, there have been um, uh, there, a lot of the big megalithic corporations today would not be around today still. They would not have survived if, um, if they hadn't have done mass layoffs at one time or another to try to, to save the company, right? right. Uh, or, or exited a product line or, or what have you. Um, now that makes most of us in the agile world extremely uncomfortable, right? Because we, we very much are, are about the individual human side element and think about the impact that, that these megalithic corporations have when they make uh, decisions based on, um, on raw numbers like that. And, and we, there are podcast series, there's books, there, there's a lot of really smart people who have argued that that's the wrong thing to do. But what I would posit is that it is not always the wrong thing to do, just like it's not always the right thing to do. It is a survival strategy and not necessarily, just like adaptability, not always necessarily the right one, right? Um, you just made me think of something, Joel. Uh, is the secret, right? Is the secret that maybe the smart companies are getting to or maybe do more organizations to think this way is, I'm gonna use Kellogg's as the example, right? Big, huge, multinational food corporation, right? Manufacturing snacks, convenience foods. They just announced they're splitting into three separate entities, right? Cellular mitosis, right? They have one entity, which is just the cereal business. They have uh, another entity, which is plant-based stuff. And then they have a third one, which I think is just like junk food or something. Something like that. But that... That actually increased to me, that increases the potential survivability of the company because they've, for lack of a better analogy, they've Chinese walled different parts of the company. So then this way, if say, say people decide, you know what, enough of this plant-based shit, right? Give me the HFCS, baby. Give me the HFCS. That would kill off the piece that tailors to that, that's tailored to that market, but then the rest of it. Continues along the merry way. So, so let me ask you a question, Jake. Why do species um, have more children than to simply replace themselves? Mm. So, for instance, rats have like twenty babies, right? And the larger mammals, the the larger the mammal gets, the less offspring it has. Like humans, elephants, whales, it's one to one, right? But but it, so so for a minute, think about why. Why is that? I actually know the answer, but I don't recall it. It was just in that book, Scale by Jeffrey West. It has to do with like allometric scaling laws and bodies well, of a certain size. Yeah. 
so so i'm not that smart but <laughs> but as i understand it is that what you you have the number of of children that it takes on average to to ensure this the survival of enough of them to replace you and your mate right so so statistically a rabbit will reproduce um enough that if all but two of the offspring die this the, their genetic line is mm. insured right now that's a again an oversimplification and i apologize to any science people out there that i've offended <laughs> now <laughs> but but when we look at things like what kellogg is doing i think they're trying a genuinely new survival strategy in the world of corporate which is don't try to live forever reproduce mm. right Mm. And it, so instead of having one Kellogg corporate, which for the past 150 years would have been the strategy, right? They said, let's split ourselves into three companies. That way, let's say everyone decides they've, that they've had enough of cereal, which I don't know why anyone would have a problem with cereal, but let's say that they do. Well, if that one dies, the, the genetic heritage of Kellogg's lives on in the other two or has a has a greater chance of living on right mm -hmm. so I think I think the idea of reproduction as a survival strategy is something that um, a lot of a lot of companies haven't really explored because of our kind of mechanistic thinking things so weird, weird right. thing that came to my head while you were saying that Joel and I'm going to go probably really left field on this um the when you're when you're trying to do that concept that you're talking about of just you know how can I replace well sometimes you get an awkward mutation or adaptation out of that right all of a sudden yep. your child's seven foot tall and can play in the NBA wow that was weird like things happen and people try to look for those things and you sort of it's luck but some of it yeah you can kind of control it right because your your son that's maybe only or daughter that's only five foot five or five foot eight can still be a really good basketball player. Because yeah. you can work it. So where I'm going with this is, is think of the innovation backlog and things that are so hot right now in all these companies where they want to innovate. They want to innovate. How much pool do you need to actually further innovate your company? Well, if you're a company that makes $500,000 and you want to innovate, that's drastically different than your company that's $1 billion or $50 billion and you want to innovate. The yeah. stakes are different. So how much volume do you really need to produce and how much of that volume succeeds? Jay, Jay you probably know the statistic. How much innovation ideas actually succeed in a company? Like, isn't oh, it like it's, less it's, than three or yeah, two, one percent? It, yeah, it's it's well low, 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 low single digits. Yeah, yeah. But but that goes back to the whole like rat mentality. There's gonna be a ton of them because yeah, you need to for it to survive. And innovation's hard. You got to produce a lot of it, <laughs> and you got to produce a lot of crap. Right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but that's yes. kind of where my head was going is, yeah. And then you'll have this random nugget where sometimes it's, oh, our 1 billion became 1.1 innovation. And sometimes that 1 billion just became 30 billion because you all of a sudden had a seven foot child that you can exploit. I think that's where it gets interesting on the adaptability and survivability, where sometimes you adapt to survive and accidentally thrive. And that's okay. And that happens. Um, but I yeah. think it's the opposite usually happens is you adapt to survive. And then to your point, Joel, it's just, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep doing this. Um, but that's kind of what went to my head. I thought it was an interesting thought. That's all. But, but that tie, that it is interesting because it ties to the idea of the, in attempting to thrive, you end up surviving, but in attempting to thrive, sometimes you end up collapsing, right? Like yes, there's that, that, too. that, 
I mean, yeah. some, you know, John, the other side of that example is your kid comes out seven feet tall, which is great, but he has Marfan syndrome. Yes. Right? right. So his limbs are now growing at a rate that exponentially his body will not be able to support. There's all those health risks that come with that. So yep. there, there is the, there is, there should be a tacit understanding that from the, the, the people who are steering the boat for lack of better analogy, mm-hmm. that there is a chance we can innovate our way into not only obsolescence, but just, just on existence in existence. Um, yep. Uh, yep. You, you talked about, um, so that when you talked about the, the importance of innovation, because you innovation does lead to adaptability, which vis-a-vis could re, more often than not will lend to something like survivability. It also emphasizes the importance of ring fencing those experiments so that they won't infect the greater whole, right? So this goes back to the Pochinsky principles where it, the three steps are variation, survivability, and selection. It's variation is you try new things. Survivability is no matter what you try, it needs to be survival. To Joel's analogy, it can't kill the host. It needs to be something that will continue. And then when you try something and you do survive and it does have beneficial, you make sure that it, that trait is selected, go forward. So back to like homo sapiens, homo sapiens, Greg Larman. Um, we, through natural selection, the, the, the most powerful genes that have come through our genetic lines are basically sitting in, in us because they have been selected to continuously survive. Yeah, and I think a lot of this goes back to the um, anti-fragility stuff and whatnot. Um, I just want to touch on that because it's it's so, I, th- I think you're touching on it, Jay. And Joel, I want to hear what you want to, uh, your thought too, sorry. Um, when we talk about this, like in order for people to really thrive and do these things, right? They have to have this mindset of what, what can I do that pushes the boundaries that doesn't embark on like the critical risk space, right? Because, okay, yeah, I can jump off a 10 foot building and then roll at the end. Like we push our boundaries and limits and then we learn, but like is 15 feet too high? Is, is 20 feet too high? Where's the critical risk factor where it's like, okay, I know I could go off and do these things knowing that the critical risk factor, anything higher than 10 feet, I might die. So that's where I'm going to push the boundaries. Where I'm going with this is, is the best way you can make sure that you're alive. And by alive, I mean adapting, evolving, is to check if you like change. And like change is subjective to what, how antifragile are you, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. uh, we, we talk about all the time, are you risk adverse or are you risk tolerant? Like those types of conversations and those things. I think this goes back to a lot of that. Um, and I think if we really start to look at that in nature too, there's some things out there that are very risk uh, adverse, which is things that are kind of natural phenomenons and things that are going to happen, such as if your ecosystem's changing because a waterfall slowly chipping away at a rock, those plant, like all the animals and natures and plants around are just going to be like, yeah, we know it's going to happen there. Like it's going to take forever anyways. Then you have the people that are more risk tolerant, like humans that are just going to go off and do their thing and explore and know if, as long as they don't die, they're going to probably be curious. They're going to do it. So, so, Joel, what's your thoughts? So, I, I, I like this idea of, of anti-fragility, and, uh, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a different kind of resilience, right? A lot of times we talk about resilience um, in terms of, of how adaptable somebody can be, how changeable somebody can be, um, but a, our sequoias, or the, the giant trees over in, uh, in California, managed to thrive in their ecosystem by by being 
these massive trunks that are flexible to some extent, changeable to some extent, right? But but you go up and you try to push it over and it's not moving, right? <laughs> you go run a car into it, it's not moving. Um, and and so there's, uh, it, in my mind, the, the idea of, of uh, anti-fragility, even with that, there are different uh, strategies for organisms to, to be non uh, or anti-fragile and and survivable right the mm -hmm. uh, the ability to adapt and change the ability to flex the ability uh to to thrive in different environments is one but it's just one sometimes the the uh survival strategy is to get so big and so strong that you can weather whatever storm comes your way right other times is right. to hide from it right Right. The uh, the anti-fragility stuff I find very interesting because, I mean, if you want to tie it to what's going on in our modern world, the best example of an anti-fragile system is the human immune system, right? So the definition of anti-fragility is shocks introduced to the system do not weaken it, but make it stronger. So think about as kids, right? You go outside and you play in the dirt, right? And you get exposed to all these different bacteria and viruses and the cold bug and, you know, we're kids, we get dirty. But what that does is that strengthens our immune system because our immune system gets a, encounters a thing, builds up tolerance to a thing. And it, now it is truly, instead of resilient, it's literally become anti-fragile because that thing will never get it again. It's like, like smallpox vaccine, right? Anthrax vaccine, yeah. all those vaccines that when you're injected with dead virus, your body gets it, gets used to it. And now it's no longer a harm anymore. That's the true definition of anti-fragility. And when companies need to think about that, especially through the biological lens, when they think about how do we become more anti-fragile, it's, I really think it's create the, create the opportunities to be exposed to some of those things, to build your immune system. However, it needs to be survival when it can't kill the host. White hat hackers, for instance. Yeah, yeah, another, <laughs> yes, that great example, yeah. yeah. So, so let me let me ask you guys this because this is a is an interesting take. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily a, a hot take on on this topic or not. Um, but when when we're talking about uh, adaptability and survivability, a lot of times the lens through which we we see this in companies is effectively what the stock does right what what the stock market does and uh, and how the public generally values our company now there's a lot of other uh, a lot of other measures like is the is the company solvent can it pay its employees etc cetera, etc cetera. but a lot of times when we're just trying to look at the overall health of the company we look at its its stock and it's it's the value that the market has placed on it right um I, I wonder if that has in some ways locked companies into to one or two survival strategies via market expectations. And, and what I mean by that is um, if, if a company, for instance, isn't making a profit, which, which is something that, that happens. Oftentimes the market demands and the shareholders of a company demand downsizing as, as the survival mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. And, and what, I'm, what I'm curious about is if there are things that we've constructed artificially in, in ecosystems 
that have locked us into ways of, of survival that maybe eliminate our ability to find new ways of survival. Does that, does that make sense? No, it does. And yeah. you're making, and you're making me think now on the whole concept of, um, I don't want to jump the gun though, Jay, if we're not going to hit this agenda item, but the whole agile and adaptive conversation, because yeah. I mean, we're, we're kind of touching on a little bit with what you're saying, Joel. So I get, I get a little, uh, passionate on this topic because agile is always synonymously used with these words and there there's some subtle differences and also some big ones but agility at its core at, that all of us are very close to agile coach practitioners all that good stuff we kind of lose sight that the really main focus there is about speed like that's really the purpose behind when we say agile and having agility and sometimes that's misused and misconstrued because the more you really say agile synonymously with ad being adaptive, which by the way, adaptive and being adaptive uh, and having being adaptable are different. And Joel, that's where you're kind of bringing up that case. So if we talk about agile is just speed, right? What happens when you focus on agility and speed too much? Because Joel, to your point, oh, well, we could flex, we could downsize. That's just being adaptable right? Because you have another option. It's no different than saying, I have a table that seats six. Oh, I have 10 people coming over. Well, luckily my table's adaptable. I can move it to 10 people. It's a very easy, oh, it's adaptable. We can just adjust just like layoffs, just like, but that's not being adaptive. You're not changing yes. yourself. You're just, you have a one, you're one trick pony, right? Or whatever it is. So when we talk about agile, it's speed, right? Where people sometimes misunderstand that, Sometimes going slower is okay to deliver, or sometimes we un undervalue the thinking process, which agility sometimes overlooks, um, where, you know, they have a premature bias of doing instead of thinking. Um, I could go on and on where agility sometimes has cons and things to these. I get a little upset when people say, well, we're agile. Well, let's talk about your adaptability and how adaptive you are, because right now, yeah, you are adaptable. You have this mode of this happens, this mode of death happens. Guess what? So do the other thousands of companies. Right. That's, that's not what we're talking that's about. That's not, not really <laughs> adaptive. You, you literally have a, you're basically multimodal, multimodal yes. until such time as you're presented with something that yes. none of those models and modes and, work. And, and this is like in nature, right? It's like, oh, it's winter. I got to hibernate. Yep. They're, they're adapting to the season. Same, like same thing <laughs> everyone else is doing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. there, there's um there was a i think it was last year at the at the the agile convention where they talked about i think it was uh simon wardley and kent beck had that conversation around the whole usage of the word agile and yeah. and i think kent actually said that you know it was kind of a bad choice for a word because everybody wants to be agile it was a bad choice because it doesn't you're gonna hear that you're gonna yeah of course we want to do agile we want to be agile and there is a difference between agile and adaptive and adaptable and anti-fragile, like all and these things that we're talking about. There are, and, and it's not just a semantic conversation. There really is subtle differences that when amplified by behavior make big waves. Well, I, I think the whole premise of, of this entire conversation is that semantics matter, right? Yes. That that the words that we use matter and uh, it, it, with agile and adaptive and, and all of these, uh, uh, even adaptive, I think still has that, that core weakness of who would say 
we don't want to be adaptive. Nobody would. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, and and one of the things that that I, I kind of like about where we're going with uh, mechanical versus organic is that it is a genuine choice that people have to think about. Right. That you know it is kind of attractive to think about the world in a mechanical viewpoint. Right. To the point where uh, where left one of our one of our, our fantastic uh, co-hosts here uh, on this uh, a couple of episodes ago said, well, could we combine these two? Could we could we do something that's both biological and mechanical? <laughs> and so I, I love the idea that uh, that hopefully hopefully the next thing that comes out, whether it's this or something else, isn't something that everyone just inherently wants to be or agrees with, yeah. right? Um, I think yeah. we were we were talking on our Discord uh, uh, chat in uh, in the AU Discord, which, by the way, uh, shout out to that. If I try to do this every every podcast and find a way to work our Discord uh, uh, server into the mix somehow. Um, it, it's but awesome. It, it is awesome. Um, but in there, one of the things that we were talking about here the other day was just the amount of pure BS that gets spewed on LinkedIn. Right. <laughs> and and how it's it's all stuff that everyone, of course, I agreed. Water is wet. It's powerful, wet stuff, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> like. Yeah. And so I think what it, whatever movement this takes, um, it, it's got to be something that is that's genuinely controversial, that people have to think about whether or not they want to be that, you know. Well, and I I want to I want to touch a little bit, too, on when we were talking about the adaptive stuff, because to. Um, Adaptive, really, you're, you're talking about things like you want to change yourself or itself to accommodate and maximize a benefit of a change, right? That's the whole mm. reason you want to be adaptive. So if that's the intent, something has to trigger a person or itself, but usually we're talking about people here. What is triggering that? And usually when you look at organizations and businesses, what do people start to now get to? And there's a lot of people that think this is virtue signaling and just people but it's there's some truth to it and this is where people start to hang on their hat about what's their purpose mm -hmm. why would they want to adapt why do they care so this happens naturally all the time too where uh, people all of a sudden have a need to survive because oh i'm gonna have a kid in nine months well that changes people they mm -hmm. have to adapt and then they have a sense of purpose when they become a parent because that's very different and it motivates them to do different behaviors and different things. And it's because it gives them a sense of purpose differently. So if we talk about getting a sense of purpose and I don't wanna to get too off the rails here, but it's important to note that like we're talking about survivability and adaptability. Yeah, if you wanna get more adaptive, I mean, let's talk about purpose, right? So how do you get purpose? Well. You want to be able to change yourself in order to capture opportunities to get potential value. Yeah. You want to recognize mm -hmm. those opportunities and then whether or not that's actually going to benefit you or not inside or outside the organization, let's say, right? Um, sometimes people are motivated by purpose because it's not even something that will help them within the organization. That's okay. Um, achieve all the above and at a stand, this is where it's key. Are you going to be able to do this at a standard pace? that still creates value. And I think that's where Agile's misconstrued because everyone just thinks, oh, just go as fast as possible. That's not always true mm -hmm. because knowledge working and all that, we all know that going as fast as possible 
like I will, I will say, uh, let's say Elon Musk is a great example of this. He could have gone faster to got uh, to build a rocket and build what he did, but he didn't because he knew let's move fast because we have budget constraints and all that. But we also have to make sure we build the damn right thing, otherwise it won't work. So yeah, I'm going to delay the Tesla car for two years. You know why? Because it's the right thing to do. Right. Right. I'm going to keep building it. So little things like that. And then obviously to close it off here gives the organization an adaptive advantage. That's the key piece too. When we're talking about purpose, like you want to adapt. Well, why? Well, we get a competitive advantage. I think these are important things to drive purpose. And I think going back to the organic side of this, I think these organisms probably have a purpose in their head for why they would need to adapt. Right. And I think Joel, you were talking about it with the analogy with the rats, they have a purpose. They like, they have, no, it's, it's in their genes. It's, it's a little different because the evolution has to change it. But that's what I was thinking. But curious if you think differently or if that's. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that is that, that we're going to hear a thousand. Uh, no, not even a thousand. We're going to hear a thousand million scrum masters cry out in sudden pain when I say Oh, here we this. go. What if we've been looking at purpose wrong? Like our whole, our whole movement, and, and this is a hot take, I realize this, I'm, I'm probably not going to hang my professional hat on this, <laughs> um, but, but what if for the last 20 years, our, our, all of our material on purpose has been wrong? Our, our material on purpose for the last 20 years in, in uh, the world of Agile and the world of, of corporate America, et cetera, has been our purpose is to deliver value to customers, right? Customer okay. centricity is the core of, of every, every agile presentation, every agile transformation. It's, it's at the very beating heart of agile, right? What if that is actually not an organization's purpose? Fundamentally, if we look at um, moving from a mechanical to a biological metaphor. In a mechanical metaphor, the purpose of a machine is to serve the person who, who has it, right? Okay. In a biological metaphor, the purpose of an organism is usually found through survival and reproduction. Right? Right. So what if customers are not actually the heart of an organism's purpose what oh. if they are a strategy similar to the um similar to the bacteria that lives on our skin okay Joel, where you you got me thinking in a weird way um i'm just gonna spit this out because you're already hot take telling you thousand um, million scrum masters crying out in well, pain right now <laughs> You know what? You know where my head went, and I don't even know if this is. I'm sure some scientists are gonna be like, Jonathan, you are so wrong. Um, but like, the, what I'm thinking of now is, um, how long does it take a baby to get made? Like nine months, right? No matter what you do, it's gonna take nine months. Yeah, some we have premature babies. I understand that, but let's say on average, the normal thing. So, what can we do if we know the outcome is a awesome individual that's a unique thinker? All that we know what the outcome is. But look at these things of where you're going, right? Where our purpose, well, we can move faster. We can do all this stuff. Well, let's look inward about what's happening there. We know it's going to take nine months. So can we maybe tweak the, like, the actual process here, though? Can we take prenatal vitamins? 
can we like what can we I'll do take one arm. That? He only needs one arm. Can I have well, it in seven? Um <laughs> so like where I'm going with this though, and it's an interesting thought, Joel. Like, if we really say the purpose of the company is to exist to serve the customers, I think that's a fallacy and a very old school mentality that because what are we truly trying to do there? Return value to shareholders. And there's that funny comic strip where it's like, oh. The earth's going to end in 10 years or like, and, and, but thank the Lord, we provide so much value to our shareholders <laughs> before we die. Um, that's a weird thing to think about. It, um, maybe, yeah. maybe any cus, any organism or any organization, it's very possible that if they say they are customer obsessed or, or customer centered, et cetera, maybe they're lying. Because well, maybe think about it's, it. well, it's not actually I, capable for that to I, be an organism's fundamental purpose. I think there are companies that say they exist to serve the customer and their primary motivator is to make customers happy, to like customers a We're customer-centric, right? Um, however, the biggest tell to see if a company that says they are actually is, do, what, what do they put emphasis on when it comes to measuring things inside the organization? Nine times out of 10, those companies that say they're customer centric, the biggest things they're worried about is profitability and operational expense, which are two things that unless you want to really go down the semantic argument rabbit hole, as a customer, I really don't give a shit if Apple is profitable or not, or what their OPEX is. I want to use, I want to use the iPhone. I want to make it work. But, but you hey, know Jay. what those measures are good measures of? Survival. to an extent to to an extent there's a lot of 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 footnotes there and and exceptions but that's essentially what they're trying to measure can we survive another year so joel write this down because we need to do a different episode on this that (laughs) idea of concentrating on profitability and opex as a survival mechanism Mm. we i would I think that we could do another episode where we just unpack at what inflection point does that tip over? Does going from worrying about, don't answer it now, but I think we could probably with ruminating yeah. have an interesting conversation about at what point does solely concentrating on profitability and OPEX tip over from well, a good survival strategy to you're actually accelerating your demise. So I'm, I'm going to put some, some groundwork out here for this episode. And I think this should actually probably be the, the title of that episode. And that is what are the different species of organisms and what survival mechanisms have they evolved? Mm. Mm. Because, mm. because I, I think what we're going to find is that in certain classes of the classifications of companies that they have evolved certain survival mechanisms that, that they have, that that they've found work, right. Mm. For public Mm -hmm. companies, a focus on, uh, and, and we'll, we'll, we can dive into this later because you're right. This is a whole episode in and of itself. Um, but, but for public companies, it is those metrics like profitability, like, like uh, OPEX and CAPEX and, and those sorts of things, right? Those are the mechanisms that they've discovered over the last 100, 150 years that have allowed them to survive. Other classifications of organisms like um, nonprofits have evolved very, very different uh, Ooh, standards, what a good example right? <laughs> what a good example of different different survivability plays right right because yeah. they do they work in an entirely 
I, I've never done nonprofit work. Either of you ever worked in nonprofit? Very like volunteering, but not right. Not but I, yeah, I, I've been a part like, of it professionally. Like that is no. maybe we should find somebody to talk about the biological differences between companies like that because I guarantee you that is that's something that I can't even wrap my well, head around. Well, just and, think of it: nonprofits when they accidentally have profit or like do well the first thing that comes to their head is well how can we do more and give back to the people maybe that help do that like their mindset's completely freaking different (laughs) yeah and and their position in the ecosystem is too right i mean there's all these different companies have different survival mechanisms in the ecosystem a lot of a lot of it companies today see consumers as this giant organism that they have to adapt around right like the uh like the little fish that swim alongside the whale shark or the bird that lands on the hippo that that basically we have to follow them around because that is our survival mechanism right and that's where adaptability becomes very important because if they change direction and we don't well we're going to go get eaten by a shark (laughs) right 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 now, we're, now we're getting into like symb- uh, symbiotic relationships, and and this is about as good as place as any to cut this episode because we're yeah. hitting an hour and <laughs> we're going to go in a weird direction. So, uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Joel and John for coming on again. Uh, for all of you listeners, is this something that's kind of interesting? Is it kind of do you get it? Do you not get it? What are we missing? Please come on to Discord, get in the conversation, and let us know because we really want to. We're, we're we're baking out this metaphor in real time, the move towards biological um, messaging. Yeah. And we really could use some, some where we're always looking for another interesting opinion. So again, find us on discord, find us on Twitter at agile uprising. Uh, we have a Patreon, blah, 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 blah. Uh, thanks to machine man records and Krebs for providing our outro music free of charge. Uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, this is the agile uprising podcast signing out. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.